Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation in a really, really sunny day in Los Angeles today. My guest and I today go way back. I'm talking as far back as him being my very first client when I jumped off and started my company back in 1998. He and I have spent many days, months, long nights, working and developing trial strategies for opening statement, witness preps, closing arguments, graphics, it's just been a, a, just a really amazing experience and relationship in, in my world. Um, he's had quite the career. He's an LA native, graduated from UC Berkeley Law School in 1981. Practiced for nearly 40 years in complex and intellectual property litigation with a good mix of like plaintiff and defense matters. He's tried cases in various states, California, Colorado, Texas, Florida, Nevada, Handled appeals in the Ninth and Federal Circuits, as well as California and Nevada state courts. His largest judgment obtained over $100 million. I was very, very excited when that happened. Partner of Norton Rose Fulbright, formerly Fulbright and Jaworski, for nearly 30 years. Chair of the Los Angeles Office Litigation Department and member of the firm's policy committee, which is Board of Directors. He's taught trial advocacy at Loyola Law School, and I was very proud that he invited me to come in and teach a couple classes with him. And he was also received recognition of American Lawyer Litigator of the Week for a second verdict that we received in a case we'll talk a little bit about later. He recently retired, 2020. It was a very hard day for me. I just really miss miss John. But uh, he's also a board member of the Inner City Law Center. And since his retirement, he's become a strong advocate for mental health, where he's on the board chair and president of NAMI, Greater Los Angeles County, which is the National Alliance for Mental Illness, as well as the Glendale Affiliate. So I really look forward to our discussion, and this is a new important chapter in your life. I'm very excited to welcome John O'Malley. Welcome, John. Well, thank you, Juliet. It's great to be here. It's great to see you virtually. Um, I know, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, first, I, I really want to say, I, you know, my career would not have been the same without you. I, I, I you know, how I, I strongly feel about that in our relationship. And you've just always been such a believer in me. And I just, I want to thank you for trusting me in so many scenarios. We've been through so much and so many memorable victories and defeats. And, you know, one of my favorite moments I always love to share is our opening statement strategy in the back corner of a Las Vegas restaurant for like a $40 million case. <laughs> it's just like, we've really had some amazing moments. So uh, I just really always want to put out the my gratitude for you there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all true. Um, 
Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. And and so, thankfully a lot more victories than than defeats as things turned out. Yeah. Which was yes. All good, good ones. Really good ones. Really yeah. Good. So now you're retired. Sounds like you're really working on something that you're very passionate about. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in uh, NAMI and about the organization, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So after about 40 years of practicing law, I decided I wanted a change and I was ready to retire. And uh, I had been involved in NAMI for about, uh, oh, I don't know, five or six years at that point, but more as a person using their support services. And I thought that there was maybe something I could add to the organization. Uh, there were some changes in boards at that point that created some openings that I thought I could, uh, you know, help out in. And I think it was what I've learned, by the way, is as soon as a lawyer retires and tells that to their friends, anybody who's on a board is going to give them a call and say, right. how would you like to join a board? So <laughs> right. um, that was an experience I hadn't had before, but now I'm kind of used to it. Uh, but anyway, NAMI is an outstanding organization. It really is. It's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Mm. And it got started over 40 years ago now uh, when parents in Northern California, actually in the San Mateo area, uh, turned out to have children who were facing mental illness issues. And they didn't know where to turn. At that time, and even Sadly, often still today, there are just very limited resources out there to educate people about how to deal with mental illness uh, in their families. And it's something that is, still carries a terrific amount of stigma to the point where people don't talk about it. So even though somebody with a cancer diagnosis or a bad heart uh, we'll probably share that mm -hmm. with their close friends and get some support, mm -hmm. uh, as we've all, you know, had in our lifetimes, I'm sure, have an experience mm -hmm. of supporting others through those kinds of diagnoses. When mental illness hits, that's not a diagnosis most people are willing to share, uh, and even often within the family. Uh, so right. one of the really important things we do is provide support groups for family members and also people with diagnoses, but at this point, I'm just talking about family members for a moment, to, to support family members with uh, actual places where they can have a safe space and talk mm -hmm. about this with other family members who have faced similar situations. Provide them resources, of course, and provide educational support, but also just provide emotional support and caring for, mm -hmm. for people like that. And I found that to be a very profound mission. So I was very happy to become uh, involved in it much more deeply than I had in the past. And it's, uh, it's, it's proven to be fascinating. Yeah, it's, you know, I myself have finally been able to kind of talk about the fact that, you know, I, I battle depression. And I, I still don't, not quite sure why it's so hard to talk about even in family, you know, family to family or, but it's so good to see their organizations out there that are growing in support and your services are free, right? They're free to everybody. And um, we fund it through donations from very generous uh, uh, people and institutions and foundations. Uh, there's some state and federal money that uh, helps us as well. Uh, so that allows us to provide these services for free and uh, it's free to all comers. 
Uh, there are over 600 affiliates throughout the country in almost every place in the United States. If you want to reach out to NAMI, uh, you can look it up on the, oh. you know. Yeah, we're going to promote that here at the end of this podcast for sure. Yeah. And the connections. Um, so one of the th one of the interesting things, of course, is that we meet people pretty much on a weekly basis who are suffering and, and facing mental health issues for the first time in their families. Uh, and oh. uh and the stories, of course, everybody's story is unique, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, but but there are amazing similarities among them too. And so that's why we're a safe mm -hmm. space: is that people come and share their stories and realize they're hearing stories from ten or fifteen other people who yeah. uh, are much more similar than different, and that provides terrific well, support for people, right? Yeah. Well, that's. Then you know my theory on persuasion. It's all about the ability to relate. Yeah. And you can persuade others when you have that ability to relate and have a connection. And um, so, I mean, it's just such an incredible organization. You know, I, I saw, I looked up some statistics um, over the weekend. I saw a statistic from the United Nations news report that there are nearly 1 billion people worldwide suffering from some kind of mental disorder, which is, includes one in seven teenagers. But if there's so many people, why, why do you think there's such a stigma around it? If, why is it so hard? Do you, do you have any theory on that? Oh, I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Um, uh, but you're absolutely right. The prevalence is very great. I mean, even with, with, a, spe with a specific mental illness such as schizophrenia, which is a, a you know, a psychosis type disorder, mm -hmm. a thought disorder, um, the estimated prevalence throughout humanity, throughout the world is about 1%. And that's a lot oh. of people, right? That's a lot of people of in the world. world. And it doesn't vary much by culture. It doesn't vary much by ethnicity. It doesn't vary much by, you know, latitude or longitude. I mean, it is throughout the world. It's at about, mm. it's at about 1%. Um, so with that, many people who are suffering or likely to suffer um, some very serious psychotic disorders, um, mm -hmm. why don't we talk about it more? Um, right. It's uh, historically, it's been shunted, you know, most cultures have just uh, shunted it under the rug, um, mm -hmm. just pretended it didn't exist. And um, so one of the things that NAMI is very interested in trying to do is destigmatize these issues. I mean, I think you probably saw this last week that uh, Senator John, John Fetterman from Pennsylvania um, mm -hmm. checked himself in uh, to the hospital for clinical depression mm -hmm. and didn't make it a secret. I mean, actually right. it was, you know, opened up. Um, well, that's fabulous in a way. I mean, I'm very sorry for the senator, and I hope he and I hope he recovers. I hope he gets the, right. the treatment he, he he needs, and uh, uh, you know is 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 doing well. But it's fabulous from the standpoint of destigmatizing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you're probably old enough to know that vice presidential candidate many years ago who uh, you know ad admitted to depression and he had the get off the ticket because mm -hmm. it was seen as such mm -hmm. a, a shock. Uh, right. Today, it's not a shock. Now, that doesn't mean it's destigmatized yet. That's that's going right. to take a, a while longer. But uh, we've you know made some progress anyway in the last uh, you know 40 years or so. So, you know, the other thing that, I mean, I, I understand that from a side of depression, 
trying to always keep your keep your head up and look good and never look down, especially when you're in front of clients and things. But you know, when trauma takes control, it can you know hit so many layers of mental health from anxiety, depression, you know, schizophrenia, obviously bipolar disorder. There's so many layers of of um, you know different types. Um, how does someone do you think like be able to step in to say that they're seeing warning signs that maybe they need to get help? Well, that's a really good question. Um, where we see it at NAMI is again, through the family side of it, where family members will notice one of their loved ones, be it a child, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, behaving in ways that they didn't normally behave in. Let's let's take a look at a, at a at a child, for example, somebody who, you know, say say an adult child, and they are withdrawing, uh, and they aren't themselves for a for a significant period of time, and maybe they're becoming they're acting out in strange ways. Um Maybe there's a question of violence, maybe, you know, these kinds of things. And we get questions all the time by parents that come to us that say, what do I do? You know, how do I, how do I help my child in this example? Uh, And, you know, there's, there's lots of answers to the question. We are not clinicians. So we encourage people to uh, uh, seek out therapy. And uh, unfortunately, as I'm sure everybody is aware, often or sometimes these these cases can, um, you know, get 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 pretty uh, uh, sad and get into law enforcement issues and things like that, where which is um, which is obviously not where anybody wants to go. But sometimes, unfortunately, yeah, it's necessary. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. You know, going to the the trial side and the legal side of things. So more than half of young people who've been involved in the juvenile justice system meet a criteria of at least one psychiatric disorder, which I found just mind-boggling. Uh, Fritzi Hortzman's going to come talk to me, who's uh, the founder of the Compassion Prison Project, and she's huge about you know trauma-based incarceration and where it's where it starts from and how you know we haven't had the help. So you know it's it's yet only fifteen percent of them receive treatment. So. Is it because there's a lack of treatment out there? Is it because of the stigma? Is it just a combination of those two things? Well, it, 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 yes, all of those, all of the above. Uh, there's there's great stigma. So, you know, mm-hmm. what strategies do you have to try to stop stigma, to erode stigma? I mean, one of the things we do at NAMI, for example, we have a program uh, called Ending the Silence, which is a mm-hmm. program in the schools. We mm-hmm. go into uh, high schools, uh, sometimes middle schools. We have also have a college program, but it's mainly for high schools. And we have uh, a, a presentation by a family member, but also by a person who is suffering from, from one sort of mental illness or another to talk about what their lives were like. And this is a young person that we mm-hmm. bring in uh, to talk about what their lives were like and how they sought recovery and how they got to the stage of recovery that they're in at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and of course that's, that's authentic. I right. mean, the word I always use when I talk about NAMI is it's authentic. Everybody involved has a lived experience. And so if you mm-hmm. can, 
share a lived experience with other people, either that are going through it or they know somebody else is going through it or they have a family member, you know, whatever. If you can share a lived experience with somebody and, and make it real, make it authentic, they will see it and then begin mm-hmm. to understand it and have greater mm-hmm. sensitivity to it, have greater empathy for the people involved. Um, so that's, you know, one aspect, of course, the other side of the question is, okay, fine. Now that you've decided that there may be a problem, what do you do about it? And how do you, right. how do you access, uh, help? And right. that's, boy, that's an ongoing question. Uh, yeah. uh, there's clearly not sufficient help out there, um, on a, at, at a lot of different levels. I mean, it's, uh, I hear people all the time saying how hard it is to find a therapist how hard right. it is to find a psychiatrist. Uh, right. And uh, it's, 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 it's true that it is it's often true. very, very difficult. And having saying somebody, you know, can get an appointment in six months is not exactly adequate, you know, care when, when their right. situations are usually more, you know, urgent than that. Um, right. And, you know, and then, of course, as I say, some people have the misfortune of getting thrown into the criminal justice system. And there... Um, Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of treatment is available, how to deal with things. I mean, there's a lot we could talk about on that front, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's far from being an adequate system. Yeah. Um, Plus it, funding. We have funding on top of that. We have, you know, insurance. I mean, there's some insurance companies that won't, won't even cover therapy, which is still mind blowing. They'll cover your heart attack, but they won't cover your, you know, any kind of mental breakdown. It's just, I don't know. It seems so backwards sometimes. Yeah, you know the 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 parity law was put into place a number of years ago, um, which says that insurance companies are supposed to treat behavioral health conditions just like they treat physical health conditions. They shouldn't discriminate one against the other, right? But hmm. that that concept is, uh, you know, at least in some places, honored, uh, you know, in the breach. So, right. you know, that has to be an area of, of continued growth, obviously. Yeah, because I saw, I saw a statistic that Medicare is like the, the largest uh, payer for mental health services in the U.S., which is just so, you know, I, I'm glad we're paying for it. I'm glad there's, there's some kind of resource, but that doesn't give a lot of people a lot of, you know, hope to really find it. And I, so that's why I'll plug my... Uh, uh, my guy Joel, who's he's got a um, online service called Change Your Algorithm, which is a free therapy service. And we he was like our second or third guest. Which there are places out there, but you know, like Nami, we've got to find them, right? We got to yeah. get them out there. So, so talk a little. Well, let's talk a little bit about the trial system with with mental illness. You know, prepping someone with mental illness to go to trial. Have you ever had to work with someone in that scenario? Well, <laughs> I. I I guess the answer to that must be yes, uh, but 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 I probably didn't know it at the time. I'm much more sensitive mm-hmm. to these issues today than I'm than I was, you know, years ago. And I think everybody who's involved in in litigation at a at a fairly profound level in their lives, more mm-hmm. than just a passing contact the contact, but but something somebody who's really, for example, a key witness or a client or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, will have a great degree of uh, distress going through it. Um, they be, because everybody brings their own unique perspective to the 
litigation story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's seen the events, but they've seen it from different standpoints. They've seen it from their own standpoint. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect, mm-hmm. which is trickier, is that they want to do well. Right. Uh, every client wants to win their case. Uh, mm-hmm. The job of a lawyer is to get the best result they can for their client. So mm-hmm. this is this is how the system is set up. This is not set mm-hmm. up to provide therapy. It's right. set up to right. you know right. get to the truth or to win by however you describe winning, um, right. which is not usually thought of in terms of a therapeutic outcome. It's much more thought of in terms of a dollar and cents outcome. Um, right. So it's it's it it. it it's a challenge. So, um, if so, when you're preparing witnesses, for example, you know somebody who's a key witness in a, in a case or a client, somebody whose career is on the line or whose dollars mm-hmm. and cents are on the line, um, mm-hmm. they're going to want to do everything they can to win their case, and that may be the absolute worst mm-hmm. way to approach testimony mm-hmm. because you're going to sound very biased. You're going to sound uh, that ultimately you're not very credible, that you would say anything to win. Uh, but at the same time, you have to advance your case. You've got to advance your your mm-hmm. your theory. You have to say the uh, get the true facts in the record. And uh, so that's 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 where the lawyer comes in. This sort of objective, sort of objective, hopefully objective uh, person over the shoulder of the witness who can help them with this experience and to hopefully mm-hmm. line the cards up as best as possible for their ultimate success. Um, so that's, that's a, and, and of course it gets very complex when you're dealing with other cultures, uh, whose mm-hmm. uh, trust of the U S legal system may not be a hundred percent, and, uh, whose, um, agendas may be difficult to discern. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it becomes, it becomes more complicated. Right. We had a, a very good case like that for a long 15 years where, uh, you know, it was really, you know, I knew you called me at one point in time said I really needed to come over and talk to our main witness. He's just having a breakdown and it was, it was a breakdown of cultural differences, trying to understand the process, the stress, you know, and kind of walking him through that in a way that was like, look, you know, when I sat down with him, I said, how in the world did you get this law firm to, to take your story? And he sat down and started talking about my story. And I said, well, that's the story you tell the jury. It's, it's, it's your story. It's your truth. And, um, you know, it took a lot of work with him, but he, you know, he, he got there and, uh, obviously did, you know, very well in the end, we've done very well with that. But one of my main questions for you today was that now that you know about NAMI, now that you're really involved in this, would you have approached witness prep a little differently? Oh, I think I probably would have. <laughs> I yeah, I think that's true. I think that um, look, the more you gain experience in life, the better you are doing a lot of things, including prepping witnesses, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's no point. And Nami's given me a lot of experience in life. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I think you understand people's concerns and issues and perhaps motivations. Uh, You're more empathetic uh, when you're Mm -hmm. dealing with people who are struggling. Uh, You, 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 you know, and also let's, you know, I, I have lived experience as well, having a family member who's uh, uh, 
uh, face serious mental illness. And so for, so for me, it's, you know, living through that, at least in my mm-hmm. case, I hope, uh, has developed a certain amount of empathy in me that I didn't have before. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's, that's the whole point of the, you know, podcast you and I talked multiple times about me wanting to do this and, and just to look at the healing process through the trial system, because like, well, you know, how many times this system sometimes just is not set up for you. you come in, you, what's your next witness? And they have to come in and tell a really scary, horrible story. And that's like, okay, next. And, you know, and so it's to try and bring some awareness of coming on the stand in a more kind of organic or holistic way. Um, meditation, chiropractic, food, you know, something that allows us to, you know, get through the trauma. And um, and yet, you know, last week I had interviewed uh, Scarlett Lewis, and she was the mother of uh, one of the murdered children in Sandy Hook. And her interview was so incredible because of her empathy, compassion, uh, having to testify against Alex Jones, um, the conspiracy theorist. And um, she just... The, but she said the same thing. She had great lawyers, but she had no witness prep. Um, mm-hmm. So it was fascinating that you can still be a great lawyer. That That's not the point. The The point is how are we approaching it, you know, with another layer um, of help, uh, similar to the, to the legal system, the, you know, the policing, um, you know, how are we not uh, able to really have a police system that's only based on, you know, the mental health side of life versus just only the law. Do you, do you think that's ever going to change? Yeah. So, well, that's an area of, of a lot of interest and um, work these days. Um, I've been involved in the, something called crisis intervention training, um, which is for police departments. Uh, and in Los Angeles County, it's for both the sheriff's department and LAPD. Um, are involved in this program. There are different acronyms that name it, but that's basically that idea. And some of our local law enforcement agencies, smaller agencies do too. And what it is, is it's a program that is usually a week of training or certainly a number of days of training for officers, often patrol officers, which is to say younger officers, but also ones who are more senior, uh, to teach them all about the intersection of mental health and law. Uh, and, and much of its training, much of its, uh, the training is technical, it's police oriented, but at the end of the training, for the last two hours usually of it, um, NAMI representatives come in and talk about their experience. And I talk from a family member's perspective and then somebody comes in and talks from a, from a peer perspective, in other words, from a person with a diagnosis coming in and talking about their experiences. And these are experiences with law enforcement uh, often, uh, and uh, talking about what works and what doesn't, uh, talking about um, what recovery looks like. Because, you know, some of the things we, we have to remember when we think about policing is that these folks, these cops, are seeing people in the very worst day. Mm-hmm. They're finding somebody who's, you know, acting out on the streets of Hollywood. Uh, mm-hmm. who is, uh, you know, floridly psychotic, perhaps. Uh, and um, they see that person that day, and they form impressions of that person that day. And they spend, right. you know, 15 minutes or half an hour with them, and then they're on to the next radio call, right? 
Right. So that's their connection with this person. What they don't mm-hmm. see is how that person has recovered. What they don't see right. was what that person is like three or four or five years down the road. And right. hopefully it's a better picture three or four years down the road than it was that night that they first saw them. And that's what we try to do. In other words, we, we try to instill a level of, of recognition that people can recover, they can improve, that there's hope. And that hopefully leads to a sense of empathy. Right. Um, you know, certainly there are plenty of incentives within the police department not to end up on the front page of the LA Times with a bad outcome. Right. Nobody wants to be right. there. I, I totally get that. Right. But what's the, how do you get from A to B there? You don't want to be on the, in the right. newspaper, but at the same time, you want to be sure this person gets, you know, treated or some kind of intervention that the policemen themselves are safe, that other bystanders aren't caught up in the middle of something that could go wrong. Very complex. Uh, yeah, you know that's that's the other thing that I I love talking to Scarlett. She you know she had she, she had the approach of not only where they're going but what happened to them to get there, right? So she has the empathy for the shooter. You know what happened in his life that he just couldn't that he got there. Um, so it's interesting that you're seeing on both sides of that spectrum where. Where wow, they get there, mm-hmm. then they're in that moment. That's what, like you said, the police see at that moment, or somebody on the street you're driving by, and you can see they're just there's something wrong. And then I love that you're able to take them to get them in a, in a future. So it's that's really the way it needs to be covered. Is we have to look at the full spectrum. Do you think? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, what is now, you know, at least a a a hope, and to some extent, reality. Uh, in various jurisdictions in Los Angeles County and, and probably in other places in California is that there are what are called MET teams or PET teams, things like that, of mm-hmm. clinicians who go out on mm-hmm. calls, sometimes with police, sometimes not with police, uh, to try to de-escalate a situation mm-hmm. and um, potentially get somebody into some sort of uh, uh, treatment. Um, yeah, it seems like a good solution to have someone, you know, I mean, lawyers are taking somebody into court and they're not really necessarily trained on trauma, they're trained on the law, right? Yeah. So why not have somebody in your pocket either in trial or with a policeman or something? This seems like a very common sense solution. Yep, yep, yep. I think that's right. And uh, it's, 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 you know, limited, of course, by funding, Right. Right. Uh, that's a very expensive alternative, and and as I hear from all sources, the the number of clinicians going around is so you know dire right now. We're trying to train up more, mm-hmm. but it's 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 tough. So so there's that, um, and also you have a you know a safety question involved in police response. Um, right. So so that's a difficulty. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as as far as. Um, prepping people for, for testimony, prepping people for the litigation experience in their lives. It is very helpful to have, you know, people who are really good with people, who are really good at mm-hmm. understanding people's stories and who mm-hmm. um, can see it not from the technical legal standpoint, but from a much more holistic standpoint for the individual. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, very valuable. And I, I mean, that was, you know, Juliet, a lot of the work that, uh, you know, you've done for me over the years has, has been structured in that direction. Um, yeah. 
seeing it through through their shoes and through their upbringing and their belief system, cultural age, you know, all those things to look at when <clears throat> sitting in front of a panel who's deciding some big, big decisions that don't have, you know, that's what I always thought was so interesting. Juries have such big decisions when they don't even have a stake in the game. And then you're sitting in front of them to, to tell their truth, but yet everybody on the other side doesn't want it to be your truth. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. there becomes this mental game that, um, Really, I just, I've, I've said before in this podcast, after my deposition, it was one of the worst days of my life because it just emotionally just took me out on. So I'm hoping that we can, you know, bring to light more of the process, not just prep up too, but, you know, after they get off the stand, it's, you know, it's, it's still got a lasting effect for sure. But I kind of want to talk about the, the uh, transformation side of it too. Like you talk about like, you know, where things are going. So, you know, you had a great statement and some information you sent me that says help families deal with the marathon they never wanted to run. What a, what a powerful statement because, you know, mental health is a marathon, isn't it? Oh, it totally is a marathon. I mean, one of the things that we routinely tell people in our support groups, um, usually in the first or second meeting we, we have with, with a particular family, is this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Mm -hmm. This is something that I mean, I don't want to make people uh, scared and, and run away, but in reality, it's something you're going to be dealing with for probably the rest of your life or a good chunk of it. Right. Uh, right. So it's, it's, you know, how do you deal with that marathon? And how do you mm -hmm. deal with something that you never thought you would be facing? Right. Mm -hmm. Like as I do this in my speech right. to the, uh, officers, particularly the young ones who have young families. And I say to them, look, you know, you're worried about your children. We all are. And you're worried about um, them, you know, running in the street and getting hit by a car. You're worrying about them hanging out with the wrong kids in high school. You're worrying about doing this, doing that. But I bet you never thought about mental illness as a potential thing you had to worry right. about. And so when that faces you for the first time as a parent or a family member, you are uh, uh, sort of by definition untethered to mm -hmm. anything that you can, you know, reach out to for, for support. You just don't know what's going on. Um, right. So, so that leads to, you know, not only support groups like, like we, we, we offer and education groups that we offer, but also to uh, self care. You have to care for mm -hmm. yourself. If you can't yeah. care for yourself. You can't care for somebody else. Right. You know, the old line about making sure you, the, if you're on the airplane and the oxygen mask comes on, you put your own one on first before you help the person <laughs> next right. to you. Uh, yep. So you have to prepare, you, you have to care for yourself. And, and we, we, we spend time with that. You know, we, we go around the table often and ask people, what are you going to do in the next week to care for yourself? Yeah. Uh, and that's a good thing to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, it is because it's, you know, someone just even, and then when my dad went through cancer, it was like, you know, that that was a marathon. And well, I kept saying to my mom, you got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of yourself. So we, you know, the mental side of it, because, you know, I think the other thing, too, is we're in society where we want a quick fix, right? Just to sure. give them a pill, it'll fix it. And that's not the way mental illness works. And um, it comes and goes. It, you know, it's something that you just have to, I believe, at least for myself, is you have to accept and then you have to work at it. And um we're just not in a world today where we like to have to work too much at it. It's like take a pill, it should be fine, and that's not the way it works, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no magic pill. Um, no, at least no. they haven't discovered it yet. Maybe someday. But, right, but, right. No, not yet. 
So if you, if you, uh, how would you like, if a, it was a family that had a, a, a person that was mentally ill and they, in jail, would you work with someone like that too? Do you work with anybody that's incarcerated? So we certainly work with those families. We work with them very closely. Mm-hmm. It's very common that we will talk to a family member for the first time and their son or daughter, often as the son, uh, has been picked up and uh, he's in you know the county jail. Uh, mm-hmm. Often, uh, somebody will be in a psychiatric hold, uh, which is which is not incarcerated, but they are in a locked facility. In that sense, their you know their freedom mm-hmm. is limited, obviously. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, they'll be they'll have a myriad of questions about what do I do? How do I help my son or daughter? What do I do to make sure they get the treatment they need? What do I do to you know, they, they, they may be in a sense of denial that the, my son doesn't really have any problems. That this is the problem of the police, not my son. What are they doing picking him up? Mm-hmm. Or they may be in a position of saying, yeah, I've seen him decompensating, but I had no, no idea it would get to this level. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, yeah, we, we deal with that all the time. And there are certainly resources. I mean, obviously, if a child is incarcerated or a loved one's incarcerated, then you do need a lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, maybe you get the public defender, maybe you get somebody else who's, uh, you know, uh, who can offer criminal defense work. But you also need um, to know and understand the resources available for treating mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. And in jails, you know, sorry to say, they're not that great, right? right. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things we, we have in Los Angeles County is, and throughout California is called the Office of Diversion and Reentry. It's for uh, people who uh, are stuck in the jail system, but hopefully can get out into some sort of uh, either locked or unlocked facility uh, to mm-hmm. get some treatment. Uh, there's a huge population, hundreds of people in the men's central jail who are still uh, under what's called felony or misdemeanor incompetent to stand trial, uh, who are languishing there because they are deemed not to be able to uh, help their defense or understand the nature of the charges against them, but at the same time, uh, aren't really getting treatment. So it's, right. you know, a horrible catch-22. It's a no-win. Yeah, it's a total it's no-win situation for sure. That's uh, got to be the the hard part of, um, yeah. you know, we're, we're seeing more examples of that, at least, I don't know, because of media. But, you know, recently someone got shot and different cases and they're like, he's, you know, autistic or he's, you know, he's got something and... Uh, you know, it just, it's been happening more and more. And I just feel like we've got to, we have to address it somewhere along the line. So, but are there, are there lawyers? I, I don't even really, I didn't think about this till really researching and talking, you know, us to us about this, but um, are there lawyers that would folk or that would have a specialty with mental illness when it comes to courts or defense or anything like that? Or is that just a public defender? Well, um, yeah, there are. Uh, uh, one area of, of specialty is uh, conservatorships. Uh, mm-hmm. There's something in California, it's called an LPS conservatorship, but that's not the, the name that's used in mm-hmm. other states. It's just the name in California. But most states have a similar thing where if, if somebody is a danger to themselves, others are gravely disabled, they can be uh, deemed by a court or in California a jury uh, to uh be subject to a conservatorship uh, where mm-hmm. a family member or 
if there is no family member, the public guardian uh, will take over the responsibility for their uh, uh, medical decisions and treatment decisions. Gotcha. gotcha. Uh, so there are lawyers who are out there uh, in the community who uh, uh, specialize in that area and will help people get conservatorships when it's appropriate. That's, uh, that's it's, good. It's a, it's a very uh, time-consuming and uh, difficult technical process, uh, but uh, but it, but it's there. Um, and yes, of course, there are lawyers who will be aware of raising uh, intent defenses based on mental illness. Uh, mm-hmm. Any any good criminal lawyer will will, will be uh, you know look look to that carefully if it's right. applicable. Yeah. Because we, you know, we I think we're all familiar with the term, you know, pleaded not guilty, uh, form of insanity or whatever, and that's always. I think it's a very interesting area that people are like, "What really? How, how's that happen?" But you know, it's uh, that's another whole show we can end up talking about. But <laughs> yeah, before uh, before we we finish up here, um, I wanted to mention your annual event that's coming up Saturday, April 29th. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. We have, for many years, uh, and in many parts of the country, we do the uh, NAMI walks. It's a uh, walk uh, where we get teams together, and people come, and they share their experiences, and they will walk uh, on a circuit, usually around uh, uh, some parts of Los Angeles, uh, as a mental health um, awareness day. Uh, and it's uh, this year it's going to be a really fun mental health festival in addition to a walk. It's going to be at the uh, LA, LA State Historic Park, which is the old cornfields, an area called the Cornfields, <laughs> on the kind of north edge of Chinatown that was developed, uh, you, you know, 100 years ago or something. It's basically a cornfield between some rail yards. Uh, but now it's been turned into a park and it's this lovely park. You really have to check it out. Even if you don't go to the thing, you got to check out the park. It's very cool. Oh, I'm coming. Uh, but please do April 29 from 10 to, uh, mm-hmm. one o'clock, I think, um, at the, at the LA state historic park, there'll be parking there and, uh, there'll be food and there'll be fun events and some speakers and, uh, and, a, and a walk, a lot of, uh, you know, folks with their, uh, uh tents and everything will be there. Uh, and, uh, I think it's going to be a fabulous experience. Uh, hopefully it'll be a sunny day. Uh, and, and that's right at the beginning of mental health May. It's the weekend before the beginning of mental health month, which is a month you'll see a lot of different activities throughout, uh, the country really, uh, on all sorts of mental health issues throughout the month of May, but start it with us on April 29th. I love it. I hope you will call me to volunteer. I know that we would totally love to do, you know, whatever, how we can help. I, I, we love doing stuff like that. So Absolutely. Like, be so, uh, would love to get involved with you. So, uh, but where can listeners find more information on uh, NAMI? Okay. So go onto the internet and plug in the letters N-A-M-I, NAMI, uh, and your, uh, you know, search engine will populate with all kinds of things. But if you're in Los Angeles, if you're hearing this in L.A., what I would uh, recommend you do is go to NAMI GLAC. That's G-L-A-C. That stands for Greater Los Angeles County. NAMIGLAC.org. Uh, and it'll give you all of our things that we're doing, our support groups. It'll put you in touch with support groups throughout the county. Uh, many of them are virtual these days, so we just get on Zoom and, and do it. And, and some of our chapters uh, have them in person. We're all trying to get back in person, but it's, it's, a, it's a slow mm-hmm. change back to that. Right. 
so check out Nemi Glac, that's G-L-A-C dot org, and in my own uh, bailiwick, NamiGlendale.org. Both are mm-hmm. available, and we'll, we'll, uh, we can provide all kinds of resources. We also have a warm line. We'll return calls, uh, not uh, like 911, but certainly within 24 hours, we'll get back to you uh, and mm-hmm. uh, help out with, with uh, resources or anything else you want to talk about. Well, John, I am so happy to hear you so happy. I am, I, uh, as much as I miss working with you and uh, it's been such an amazing ride with our career, I, you're just doing such incredible work. And I, I, I knew that was coming because you're such an incredible human. So I really, really thank you for coming on today, supporting me, always supporting me and um, just continue doing that great work. So thanks so much. Well, thank you, Juliet. You're the best. Great to see you. Always, uh, always great to work with you. I know. Always really great to see you. So, well, everyone, I just wanted to uh, thank you for listening to a really great subject today. I just can't say enough about John and the work he's doing. So thanks so much for joining us. And don't forget to go out and spread some love. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.